This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is Lynn of Lynn and Jen, and let's talk about sex. And today we're going to be speaking about a topic that I think is relevant for different age groups, because it's really about key sexual junctures. And maybe starting out with little three-year-old boys, because that's the age where a lot of boys get a lot of rules about sexual activity, and then moving to adolescent girls, uh, another age where girls get a lot of restriction and, yes, greater understanding of roles. So we're going to hit the uh, sexual spectrum across childhood. How are you doing, Jen? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to talking about this topic. I love that you came up with the term sexual junctures because it really explains what we're talking about, where I think what we noticed, we were just kind of chatting about different things that were on our mind, and we started to notice that there was a pattern to these specific developmental periods, and seeing the similarities and differences, I think, is what we're really going to focus on today here being able to identify how are these situations similar and how do they differ? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll start out and talk about the the little group. And uh, as a grandmother, uh, I've had the experience now of having a little almost three-year, two-month-old little grandson. And uh, my interest in this uh, age group, well, extended long before little Jamie was born, but um when Jamie was born, he had some special problems, and so he was a bit delayed in terms of his development. And he went to the regional center and got a lot of help and has really been doing quite well. Uh, but just recently, he had his third birthday, and uh, I decided it'd be fun to play ball with him. So got him involved in ball, and I've, I've been always busy kind of rolling balls, trying to throw them to them. And uh, but what happened was that Jamie actually threw back and he had a really good arm and it was really kind of exciting to see it. And then um, within, I'd say, about a month, um, Jamie began to come up with special rules that only boys and men should be throwing him the ball. No longer Nana, no longer Grandma unless no one else is there, then he kind of defaults to me. But the awareness of already there's a gender kind of positioning around who throws the ball. And I mentioned this to you, Jen, and you said, and I think from all the research, that uh, kids that age, especially boys, learn, you know, both about gender roles but they also start to get, boys especially, get very strong rules about what little boys should be doing. Yeah, definitely. So what came up when you were sharing this story is that Jamie re- had recently turned three, and that's around the age where, looking at the research, it shows that kids have a clear sense of gender. 
and what gender means and that there are different rules for different genders. And and so what does happen is that for little boys in particular, there is a lot of sanctioning around what is appropriate behavior or not for them. And what shifts, I think, is that if you look at even just some of the terminology that we use for girls who maybe engage in behaviors that we associate as more masculine, we have a term which we say, you know, oh, that girl is a tomboy. There's issues with that, obviously, in terms of categorizing gender and all of that. But what you might notice is that for little boys, there really isn't a similar term for boys who like to engage in things that are considered more stereotypically feminine. And so what we see already is a very intense shaping of what it means to be a little boy and what is allowed and what is not allowed by societal standards. Well, there is a, there's a negative term, sissy boy, you know, and uh, I could even say a few of the other negative terms as you get a little bit older, they call little boys fags and all kinds of things who are engaging in what might be accepted as more uh, female gender specific uh, by certain restrictive groups, that is. Right. Um, because I'm going to give my prejudice early on in this, and I'll admit it, that I think it's really important with children this age that you try to think about expanding traditional roles. And this is a struggle for me as Nana, is how do I work with Jamie learning the roles, and yet at the same time giving him a wider spectrum. And I'm just in the learning part, so if any other grandparents have good ideas, you know, I'd appreciate it. But I think it's a real challenge for parents, too, and for adults working with kids. And Jamie did not know that he was a boy until about six months ago. He mm -hmm. really had no idea. He was not in on the boy plan. But now right. he is. And now he already knows that boys, you know, get balls from boys, not from girls. So what to do and how to handle this patterning so early? What can we do about it? you know, how to respond, you know, how to be, I think most important, be aware of it and the limitations on boys. Yeah, I think what I found really fascinating about that too is there seems to be this exception where it's like, okay, it's allowed if the other boys are not around. So it really speaks to how mm -hmm. kids are very attuned to a sense of peer pressure already, or at least that social pressure and yeah. how the rules apply or don't apply. And I, I think you're right to really hone in on that, Jennifer, because here in this case, I don't have the best kind of distance because I'm the grandmother in the right. middle of it. But I do notice when we're alone, the rules drop back. We're just two people. But when there are men, especially older men, and the ball is, is one key example at three for boys. But I noticed he enjoyed sitting at the table with the whole group of older men. And, you know, that was really important to him that he had to sit there. Only the men sat there. He was with the men. So he's already kind of identifying the group that he thinks he's part of. And we all want to belong. So it makes sense that even at three, they're trying to make sense of their world and, and figure out how, what they have to do to belong. And I think it's also important to talk about there are a lot of kids in Jamie's little preschool that have, you know, 
I would say, a wider spectrum of a gender and maybe are already identifying themselves at this age of three. Is there a girl, they're a boy, or maybe that they're neither? Yeah. You know, and I think to look at these ideas really come very early for kids and for all of us to be sensitive to them. Well, I think to even be able to start dialoguing about it, what inspired this conversation was that I had a friend who was bringing up their frustrations or um, upset feelings about a lot of children's shows having more gender expansive or even sexually expansive um, programming, I guess. I, I don't quite know what the right word is. But basically, for example, more recently, Arthur, a show that young kids watch, yeah. the teacher got married and it was a gay marriage. And so my friend was talking about how they didn't think it was appropriate because you were introducing ideas into children's worlds when they should just be children. And I, I think that coincides or it, it overlaps with really looking at kids are already living in this world and they're being exposed to this thing. It's actually more helpful for them to be able to know that they can dialogue about these things, that they can talk about their gender I think I've talked before about one of my clients who's now in middle school, but they were actually really supported by their parents in, in allowing themselves to develop their own gender identity. And it started out as being, oh, I think I'm a Tom girl was the term that they had come up with. Um, and then later on, they now identify as a girl. And as we were talking about it, they were able to reflect back on earlier times in their life and how around age three, they already had a sense that something was different, but they didn't have the vocabulary and they didn't have an environment in which to really explore what that feeling was. And so they started out with, oh, I, I must be a Tom girl. I like things that girls tend to like. And they made that word up themselves from yeah. their feelings. And I think if you listen to children, they are making up the words to try to tell about really their lives. To go back to the Arthur show, what's your thought about that show being the shown to very young children? Let's say shown to three, four, five-year-olds even could be watching it. I mean, I think it's wonderful because that is the world that we live in. And I think it takes away the veil of shame, which leads to silencing. I would much rather have my child ask about, like, what does it mean that this boy character is getting married to this other boy character? And for them to start thinking about that. I think that's part of what, I mean, this might be a stretch, but I honestly think that if you start young it takes away a lot of the stigma and the need for violence as a mean of means of controlling these different these different aspects of our of who we are so that i think when you look at a lot of the violence that happens against people who are gay or lgbtq plus i think a lot of it has to do with a sense of it threatening 
people's own identity. And so I think if you start these dialogues younger, you create more of a gender expansive world or viewpoint, and that takes away that sense of threat. I don't know if that came out well. It came out kind of jumbled, but that that's what I think about in terms of exposing kids young. Yeah. I was thinking before I had Jamie as a grandson, I had his mother, and she was a three-year-old too, and we were I was driving around the kids from the preschool because I spent a lot of time with her when she was in preschool. And a whole bunch of little kids in my little van were talking about who had two moms, who had two dads, and who had a mom and a dad, and who had only one mom and one dad. So they were kind of trying to get down whose parents were whose. And um, that was really an opportunity, I think. We talked a lot about, you know, families where there were two moms or two dads. And it did, I think, it's an example of what you're talking about. It's an opportunity for conversations that a family can have any combination, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's different with different kids. And, you know, they had different ideas about with two moms, they thought they showed up a lot more in school and these little kids. So there's different ideas they had about the combos. But uh, I think it's important to help little kids have the words for that. I'm wondering, I know you don't have kids yet, Jennifer, and I'm sure you will someday just because you love them so much. But thinking about it, do you have any ideas about how I could engage in a conversation back with Jamie about this? Because I want to expand his view. And I'm going to tell you, he told me this rule about boys throw balls to boys just after we had seen the women win the world the American women win the world soccer cup and we watched the match on TV and he wanted to go play ball which I thought was really good yeah but then again when the men came out he couldn't play with me they had I had to throw the ball to the men and then the men had to throw the ball to him and you know I wondered did he see the women playing with the women he thought that was a rule or how did he put it together and I, I don't think we know I mean, I think that's the thing is we don't know. So as simple as it sounds, I, I think I would try to get some one-on-one time with him when he's less likely mm-hmm. to be um, socially pressured into an answer and and see if you can just start that dialogue with him. Like, oh, where does this rule come from? Or who told you this rule? Or, you know, being able to ask him about what he thought about the soccer game and see if it comes up. I think... I honestly think that as a society, we don't give kids enough credit for their thought processes and their own ways of making sense of the world. And so I think if you approach it with respect for his own process, he will probably share with you what that is and that will help you better understand what's going on and come up with a plan. Yeah, no, I I think I was so surprised. And then, of course, come back to my own house, but I'm regrouping as grandma and I'm back. And Nana's going on to the scene to find out more about this and Mm -hmm. see what the rules really are. Because he clearly, at three, like a lot of little boys, knows what the rules are, what little boys are doing. And developmentally, that's an age where kids want to follow the rules. You know, they want to know what the rules are so that they can follow them. And so it's very important that you understand where these rules are developing from so you can help them create more expansive rules. Yeah. 
Well, this brings us to the other age group, which for girls, a key sexual juncture occurs in during middle school ages mm-hmm. at about 12, 13, 14, even 11. And it's really about how do girls understand sexual rules, not so much around gender, though some gender rule, but around sexuality, initiating sex, and what the experience is going to be. And there's a lot of rules that come in heavy for girls at that time. Yeah, I honestly think it probably coincides with girls experiencing puberty and being seen as more sexual objects. Um, But I also think that what inspired this for me was that more recently I've had some teen girl clients they're in middle school around and some of them are in early high school and the way that they were talking about having sex either eventually or like in the near future it was very disengaged almost or it it wasn't about sex as being an intimate shared moment between someone whether a partner or otherwise it was almost a very mechanical view of sex and i thought about how for those people who who do receive sex ed even even then the sex ed that they're receiving often focuses on the mechanics of sex or the dangers in terms of like stds and stis but they don't really talk about the more social emotional components of sexual encounters and i think That is where people get tripped up a lot, even with the adults that I see. Yeah. I I think that age group of girls, we've each had a number of girls in therapy around that juncture. And uh, um, my experience is many of these girls end up sexting nude photos online, you know, and they think this is the rule that they've got to do this. If an older boy or other kid asks them to do it, they do it. Mm -hmm. So it reminds me a little bit of little... Jamie and the rules, they've got the rules and they hold to them woodenly, you know, whether or not they're describing sex or what the rules are around what they got to do, you know. That reminds me too, what the connection that we had made was that these are both age ranges where they see the rules, but they haven't learned how to evaluate them for themselves. And so they're more susceptible to a sense of peer pressure, I think, because you want to fit in, you want to belong, actually. And so you you have these rules, but you don't necessarily know how to evaluate, okay, is this a correct rule? Is this a helpful rule? Is this a rule that I want to follow? Is it correct for me? Yeah. Um, one of the girls I've worked with who had a very bad experience in ninth grade is now heading off to college and we're talking about how things could go differently for her at college in terms of her sexuality. She's now able to really look at the emotional level of what happened during her freshman year, what didn't happen, how she was just holding on to the frame, really didn't understand the sexual interaction at all. But now she's got all the emotional feelings about it you know, years later. So it's kind of come in packaged years later. And I think a lot of people say people, kids should postpone sex or thinking about, well, they need to postpone it until they're emotionally ready. 
But for a lot of kids, that's pretty far down the road. It can be pretty far down the road. I also think part of why they're not emotionally ready, though, is we don't talk about that component. So how are you going to develop the emotional readiness to handle sexual encounters if you don't have the opportunity to have talks about it? Exactly. In our culture, and uh, few parents are adept at really talking about sexting. And, you know, that's a really big pressure for girls and even to some extent for boys when you're entering middle school and high school. So to be aware of that, to talk about that, we give the kids phones, they have access, you know, but we don't really, really caution them about this whole process. You know, so these conversations are really, really important with kids at that sexual juncture. And I think that's also hard because in our society, we really don't want to think about kids that age being sexual, let alone thinking about sexual things. And so we miss out on these opportunities to have these conversations about sex related to what they themselves are already thinking. I think there's a fear that if you have this conversation, you're going to plant these sexual thoughts or behaviors in somebody's mind. But when you look at different surveys, when I've gone into classrooms and you have kids like fill out paper about what questions they have, they're already thinking about these things. So it's much better if the thoughts are already there for them to be able to dialogue with an adult who can help give them more of a rounded perspective on things. And in these dialogues, you know, you've got to, again, as you were encouraging me with little Jamie, you've got to listen to their perspective. You know, what's going on at the high school um, where this particular uh, girl went to high school was a pretty large and challenging high school Mm. in the area that we live in. And the currency was that older kids would ask these freshmen, often girls, to sext and that was the only way they felt they could be included so it's kind of like my grandson learning the rules yeah here's the girl naive in the high school she thinks these are the rules you know she leaves her own emotional horror out of it because when she found out what had happened with these photos she had to move schools or a lot of things had to happen Right. But, uh, and her feelings are only really coming out now, three, four years later, with a lot of help. So the emotional piece is out of it when the kids are trying to learn the rules often. And conversations would help kind of maybe put the emotions back in there. I think the kids also sometimes get confused because they are very aware of sort of the, the social rules that are in play. And so when they're trying to follow along with those social rules and it goes so terribly for them, I think that also really throws them for a loop. Yeah, I I think that's what happened with this girl. And you know the story of this girl, but she ended up being psychiatrically hospitalized in the middle of all this. And I've seen a lot of girls who sexed in high school and that doesn't happen. But I think for this girl, it really was a setback. Yeah. That, uh, you know, she hadn't really thought through all these pieces for herself. And so these are sexual junctures that bring up a lot for kids. I think also to talk about with, with boys, the experience has a lot to do with feeling like they have this pressure to know more than they do know. I think you had mm-hmm. labeled it sexperts in your other book. 
Um, but I think that's another component that isn't talked about that often is boys are expected to have this knowledge, but where are they supposed to get it from? And so they posture as if they, they you know, are, are sexual experts when the truth is it's completely okay to be a young boy and not know that much about sex. It, it really is. And it reminds me, we're going to have another podcast and talk about younger boys, much younger boys, five, six, seven years younger, really looking for seeking out older girls to get sexual experience from and hook up with and what that involves, because there's a lot of that out there right now. But I, I think it's very hard for boys. They don't know how to do that. They maybe don't even know the rules. You know, a number of the boys I work with will lie about their sexual experience and they'll pretend that they have it. And they're at great risk trying to get it, really. Yeah, I think we also sacrifice a lot in pushing this narrative of, you know, boys being in relationships being a negative thing. Because I obviously don't think everybody has to be in a relationship. That may not be correct for you. But I think to, to at the get-go kind of set up this rule of like, no, as a boy, you're more successful if you're sleeping with a bunch of girls instead of it being like, oh, how wonderful that you want to have this relationship with this one person. It's really about how do we provide all these options for everyone and how do we help them learn to evaluate what is correct for them. Yeah. I think really maybe expanding those basic rules, that the rules are there, but the rules are often only a bare bones structure that really leaves out a lot of important things. I think also to really start thinking about what I work with some of my clients on is really looking at how do these rules further the system of patriarchy? Because I know this for some people that seems like out of left field, but a lot of these rules are rules of patriarchy. And as we know, and as we talk about a lot on this podcast, that itself creates a lot of issues for people. And so if you can see it within that context, it gives you a different framework from which to evaluate things. And it's something I think for parents and others who work with kids to keep in mind. I'm thinking, go back to that car ride with all the kids asking me about parents and who's got who as parents. And, you know, that's part of really what is our culture like? Is it a matriarchal culture? Is it a combination? Is it a patriarchy? You know, we know it's patriarchal now, but it's probably in shift, you know, mode. So how do we really work with that with our kids and really help them see it? And and that brings up to what, what was amusing to me and you talking about those kids is, they're they're noticing everything. They're already they're already noticing that like the kid with the two mommies has the mommies are at school more, you know. So they're already seeing all these things. It's not like we're planting these thoughts in their head. It's really about respecting that they have knowledge and that even though they may not have our experience, they have their own observations and it's important that we regard that with respect. Well, Jen, this is always interesting, and so we're encouraging everybody to have conversations and to listen, even to kids as young as three, around these important issues of uh, gender and sexuality. Yeah, thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. Come on, let's talk about sex.